1: Welcome to the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. Today, we have a very special treat for our listening audience. Our own Jessica Barron, VP of Executive Search, is joining us as a guest and host for today's episode. Over the coming months, I've invited people who are close to our organization or who are on our team to bring their unique insights and connections to our podcast making this an even richer experience for all of you, our listeners. We'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback. And now, here's Jessica.
0: Thank you for joining us for the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. I'm Jessica Barron, the guest host, and I am vice president of Executive Search for Centennial, have been for the last three years. Prior to that, I led the programs at the Cincinnati Regional Chamber, where we graduated more than 3,000 Cincinnati leaders from six executive leadership programs. Today, I'm honored to be interviewing Paul Fox, and I'm feeling very generous to our podcast listeners, because I've had so many great conversations with Paul, and I'm about to share this with you so that you can have the same pleasure that I have had over a long period of time. So today we're going to be discussing leadership and corporate responsibility, and how that comes from the culture and the effect on employees, customers, and the community as well. So before we start, you haven't heard from Paul, but you will very quickly figure out through his accent that Paul was not born and raised in Cincinnati. So I'm going to ask Paul to give us a little bit of background about how he actually got to Cincinnati professionally. Good morning, Paul.
2: Good morning. Yeah, you're correct. I'm about three and a half thousand miles away from my original home which of course was in England. I actually came to the United States during the 1990s. But when I think about you know what brought me here, it's a pretty interesting story. Um, I think what you would describe as a career communicator. So when I embarked on choosing what career I would follow, my natural instinct was to go into teaching. That's where my family at all had careers. So it seemed a natural progression for me. But Interestingly, at that time, which was in the 1970s in England, it was a time of significant industrial unrest. There were a great many professions that were on strike at the time, including the NUT, the National Union of Teachers. So my lecturers at the time really implored me not to consider teaching. They felt that that wouldn't really extend me or use my skills. So I sort of sat back and in that one of those moments of startling clarity, I guess, I thought, you know, if I'm really passionate about standing in front of a classroom of 20 or 30 students, then the opportunity to communicate with even larger audiences would be like teaching on, you know, supercharged, which led me to journalism. And that's where I started my career as a journalist both on print and then broadcast. And then, I guess, I turned from gamekeeper to poacher. And after many years as a journalist, I went into the world of public relations. And initially, in government public relations in England, and then from there into the corporate side, I was head of public relations and public affairs for Britain's second largest airline, which was British Midland. And from there into pure consultancy and ran several very large agencies in the UK and in Europe before getting opportunity to come here to the United States. And that was in the 90s. That was primarily to help a large computer company on the East Coast who had a new CEO. He was wrestling down how to really think about reframing the communications across that corporation. I went to help him. And that was in the 90s. And now I'm a US citizen. And this is truly home. And I actually came to Cincinnati. It's an interesting story. And just before the turn of the millennium, it was late 1999, probably around November, I got a call from a recruiter asking me whether I would be interested in a role with a very large blue chip company, consumer company in Boston. They wouldn't understandably, to protect the client. They wouldn't reveal the client's name, although you didn't have to be Sherlock Holmes to figure out that a large blue-chip consumer company in Boston had to be only one company, and that was Gillette. Gillette was the only consumer company in Boston. So they asked me whether I would be interested in joining them. The role was to look after communications outside North America. And I said no. And uh, we were very happy here. We were very happy in Boston. I was very happy doing the work that I was doing. And it just didn't seem to be the right time. And uh, interestingly enough, the recruiter was incredibly persistent. So almost every month, I would get a call from that individual asking me whether I was still happy, whether things were good. And that probably lasted three or four months of those telephone calls. And the answer from my side was always, yes, I'm blissfully happy. And thank you for calling. And thank you for taking an interest. Until a moment, probably towards the end of 1999, just before you know we turned into the year 2000, my wife said, is that individual still calling you? And I said, yes. She said, well, I've been thinking that it might be fun if we took the kids back to England. So to cut a long story short, next time the individual did call me, I said, you know, where was this role based? Could it be based in London, which I'm sure was music to his ears, because that's exactly where the job It's located. And on Valentine's Day 2000, I joined the Gillette company in London and stayed there for about two years doing that particular assignment before I was brought back to Boston to Gillette's corporate headquarters. And then, of course, in 2005, we announced what still stands as one of the most significant deals in the consumer company, which was the acquisition of Gillette by Procter & Gamble. And that's what brought me to Cincinnati in 2006, with the acquisition was completed. The CEO at the time, AG Laffley, had asked me to come to Cincinnati. So that's exactly what brought me here. So this is actually the longest time I've ever been in one single location.
0: Cincinnati will do that for you. It's a wonderful really? town. I know that myself. So fortunate for Procter and Gamble. Fortunate for Cincinnati, thank you for sharing that. I think sometimes the trajectory of a career is really instructive to people who are listening at different stages of their own careers. So Procter and Gamble and Cincinnati, obviously iconic, very important organization. and that's where we actually first met, because Procter and Gamble has a passion for the community passion for their employees, of course, and the culture is very much the community, the customer and the employees. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that passion for the customer, because I'm not sure our listeners really understand how deep that is and how much Procter & Gamble relies on tactile, face-to-face communications with the customer. And you have traveled the world for Procter & Gamble. And again, tell us how the executives at Procter & Gamble, when you are traveling, how you touch the customer. And if you could give us an example, I would appreciate that.
2: Yeah. And just to be clear, when you talk about customer, I think you're talking about consumers. In the P&G world, when we talk about customers, it tends to mean the retail partner. But yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, our focus on the consumer, trying to understand the needs of the consumer, right, and trying to meet those needs. Often consumers can't articulate specifically that they want a certain thing, but they're experiencing issues that once you understand what those issues are, you can begin to develop products, hopefully, that meet those inarticulated needs. So, you know, we would spend considerable time actually in consumers' homes or shopping with them to better understand those day-to-day pressures that they were all under, which hopefully we would be able to address and make their lives a little better in small ways, but often important ways. It reminds me of a story, and I hope you don't mind me sharing this, but I was in Mexico City for a few days, and as part of that trip, We'd allocated about two days to travel up to another city called Saint-Léon. It's about two hours away from Mexico City. We arrived there. And I should say that when we make these visits to consumers or we go shopping with them, they never know where we're from. We're really strangers, friendly strangers, but they don't know that we're from Procter and Gamble because if they knew where you were from, they often say things or do things that they hope would please you. And that's really not the purpose of the exercise. The purpose of the exercise was really to understand very specifically if they had needs that we potentially could try and address. So we were in St. Leon and I was with a family and the family was there was mom and dad. I think they had two or three children. They also lived with a brother and a sister, I believe, and their family and grandparents. So you can imagine This was a large family unit, probably of about 12 to 14 individuals. They occupied the ground floor of a three-story building. So if you can imagine, I think there were two bedrooms. There was one common living area. There was an outside sort of bathroom, and it was all built around a courtyard. And in the courtyard, there was a manual washing machine. So they did all their washing laundry, actually, in the courtyard, And when we arrived, I couldn't help noticing that on the top of the washing machine was a bag of Ariel, which is a Procter & Gamble laundry detergent, very premium brand. You can think about it as the Tide, if you like, the Tide laundry detergent outside North America. And it was very expensive. And here was a family, we learned, that were living on a daily wage. And it wasn't a huge wage, and it just about covered the things that they would need to eat. So this seemed to be a significant investment on behalf of the family to buy this laundry detergent when there were alternatives that were significantly, significantly cheaper. So that was interesting. You know, you wanted to try and understand what was happening there and why they would invest so much of their money in this particular laundry detergent. And I think you know, unless you did an exercise like we were doing, which was trying to understand the family and the individuals, you could have jumped to a pretty obvious conclusion, which is, you know, the mother took great pride in the family. She wanted to make sure that her children went to school in clean clothes, that her husband had a clean shirt and clean clothes to wear. But interestingly, during the course of the conversation, we began to move around to, you know, how they use their money. And uh, we asked the obvious question, which was, the bag of laundry detergent seems to be a very expensive purchase for you. Why would you spend so much of your money on that particular purchase? And half expecting to get the answer that I thought we were going to get, which is the pride that she had in the family. This is the story that she shared, which was, as we could see, there wasn't a great deal of privacy within the family home, right? There were a lot of people, they spent a lot of time together. She and her husband would save up a small amount of money every month so they could have some private time. And that private time was they went down to the local taverna and they bought a little meal and had a drink. And for those few hours, they were together alone. And she said that if she saved money, in inverted commas, on buying that cheaper laundry detergent. Bear in mind, she was washing everything by hand. That The caustic nature of that cheap laundry detergent would cause her hands to crack and blister, and she could no longer hold her husband's hands. And she used Ariel because not only did it get her clothes clean, but it was gentle on her hands, and that was You know, such a powerful insight that there were other drivers of why people would purchase those products. So, you know, I think that touched everybody, but it's the sort of work that we did on a very, very regular basis. Every time we would make a trip, we would try to carve out a day or two days to be with consumers in their homes because it's only when you do that that you get the insights that create new services and new products, because you have to stay as close as you possibly can to your consumer.
0: I just love that story. I can't help myself. I'm I'm holding my heart. With all the technology that we have and all the artificial intelligence and all the research, it's the emotional connection that you discovered in talking to those people. And we sometimes lose track of that when we see who we're actually serving. I think just that, thank you for sharing that story. It's an important story for me. It's not always so heartwarming (laughs) when you're dealing with the communications for a global leader like Procter & Gamble. And sometimes you have to deal with issues that are very challenging and that you don't always know what all the parts are. In 2014, I remember in Cincinnati, we woke up to headlines that there was a tremendous poster on the side of the Procter & Gamble building, and it was a Greenpeace protest. And if you could describe a little bit of what happened there and how Procter & Gamble dealt with a very serious consumer, not maybe not the consumer issue, but certainly a world community issue, I think that would be helpful again.
2: Yeah, and I think it's such an interesting story, and I think it highlights so many facets of working in a global economy when your heart is clearly set on improving life, which PG has always had a central focus on improving life. The issue itself is an important one. The issue that Greenpeace were highlighting was the degradation of natural environments, specifically deforestation, that was occurring because airy tracts of land particularly in Asia, were being plowed out to plant palm trees and create palm plantations for the primary production of palm oil, palm kernel oil. It was an issue that we were very close to and very passionate about. And we would had numerous conversations prior to this incident over the years as to how we could really ensure that any, we use palm kernel oil, which is a derivative of palm oil itself. We'd have many conversations about how we could satisfy ourselves that the palm kernel oil that we were using was from a sustainable source. It's not an easy problem to resolve. And to give you an example, maybe a poor analogy, but I think it illustrates the point. If you were to ask somebody where that gasoline came from that they put in their vehicle, They would probably tell you they put it from the gas station on X particular road, which would be accurate, but that really doesn't tell you where the gasoline came from. And the whole essence of being able to understand the supply chain would be to not only understand where you bought that gas from, but specifically what refinery it came from, and then specifically how it was transported to that refinery, even down to the oil well that it came from. So that was the challenge that we were facing with the use of palm kernel oil. And I won't get into the details of that, but the challenge was significant. Effectively, we would have to try and trace every drop of palm kernel oil that we used back to the very tree that it came from. But we were up for the challenge. We were wrestling that down and working with the businesses Because you sort of have two choices. Either we can define that traceability and make it work, or we need to come out of that particular product and find an alternative to it. And the businesses were highly engaged in that. So we were doing the work, but Greenpeace obviously didn't feel that we were moving quickly enough. And they brought the world's attention to that with this demonstration in Cincinnati by hanging banners from the building, which had then allowed us, I think, to have a very deep dialogue with Greenpeace. As we explained our position, they clearly articulated their position. And the good news is that over the ensuing months, we defined a program and a work plan to achieve what Greenpeace wanted to do, what we had always wanted to do. And we would work together on making that happen. So, yeah, it was an interesting time, but I think it's a good example of, you know, sometimes businesses are fully focused on what is the right thing to do. But the nature of business sometimes means that you don't move as quickly as you would like to do. And there are usually many, many good reasons for that. But the importance of being able to articulate what those reasons are can often diffuse situations that we saw, particularly in Greenpeace, where they felt that maybe we weren't moving as quickly as we could be.
0: And what was the aftermath of that? I know that there were individuals, they actually broke the law by climbing through some windows and Procter & Gamble had some other considerations on how to resolve the aftermath of that incident.
2: Yeah, I think generally the feeling was that it was a legitimate protest. Here was an issue that was important. It didn't need to be addressed. In some ways, it helped the business focus on taking action that really we'd plan to take, but, you know, to accelerate it. So in that respect, there was a legitimacy about what they were saying. And But what we didn't want was those individuals to pay a heavy price for bringing that to our attention. And what I mean by a heavy price, you know, actions like that can often lead to prosecutions, which can often lead to felonies, which can prove to be highly detrimental to an individual's life going forward. And that's not what we wanted. And we work very closely with the prosecutor's office and Cincinnati police to truly try and diffuse that process. And, you know, I'm happy to say after a relatively short time, the Greenpeace protesters were released and they went back home.
0: Yes. And I think that coming full circle on that corporate responsibility you know, and all the audiences that a corporation needs to address. And that is the hallmark of a company as quality-oriented as Procter & Gamble. So we've come to expect that, but you don't always see what it takes to put it into effect. So thank you for sharing that. So we are passionate about customers, and we're also... At Procter & Gamble, not we, Procter & Gamble has also been passionate about talent. And the culture of Procter & Gamble and other corporations has been to nurture that talent and to initially take people out of college, and they spent their careers learning about that culture at Procter & Gamble. That's not really what's going on today in the world of talent. And I'd like to have you just share with us some of the changes that have happened in corporations like Procter & Gamble, not just them, and what you see as your role in the coming pipeline conversation about talent.
2: I think, you know, let's, let's just focus on p and G. P and g has always recognized, I think, from its earliest days in the 1830s, the importance of people, right? And in fact, one former CEO, I think, articulated it well when he said, you can take away all our buildings, you can take away all our machinery, just leave me the people and I'll rebuild the company within five years. And I think think that still rings true today. People are, without doubt, the most important asset any business has. And building and growing that talent is in my opinion, the most important role that we all have. If you ever wanna progress within a business and you are ambitious and feel that you can do greater things with your life, just remember that you'll need a replacement. If you're gonna move on, somebody needs to replace you. And your role is to identify who that individual or individuals are. To recognize their potential, help them reach that potential, and ideally put them in your role so they can do your old job better than you ever did it, which will then allow you to move on to some other activity. So the importance of talent development within P&G, and personally to me, has always been what I believe in, is incredibly important, incredibly important.
0: And Really, all companies are dealing with this and gets back to my mantra, which has always been good when you're there, better when you leave. And if you just keep that in mind, then if you've done your job, you've pulled talented leaders. So in this next role, the roles of your career, you've gone back to teaching, which is what you considered when you started. Tell us about how that helps in that talent conversation and helping our organizations understand and providing that pipeline.
2: Yeah, I, it's been a pretty enormous circle to go around you know, and get back to where I was. But you're quite right. You know, When I set out on a career, yeah, teaching was was what I thought at the time was going to be the destination. And yes, you're absolutely right that I've come full circle now. In 2015 I was very fortunate to be awarded a visiting fellowship at the University of Oxford in England and I continue to be associated there. But once I retired in 2017 and it's interesting to think I don't feel like I am retired at all. And in fact I probably feel busier today than I ever was, you know, in the past. But when I did officially step down from PNG, it gave me an opportunity not only to continue that association with the University of Oxford but also to become associated with several of our universities around the Cincinnati region, and specifically Xavier University in Cincinnati and with Northern Kentucky University in Highland Heights. Because I've always felt that we've all, no matter where you are in your career, whatever point you are in your career, you have always got something to offer the individuals that are around you, whether it's your community or whether it's your fellow workers. And now, you know, as as I look back on close to 40 years in business, there's a lot of experiences that I've been fortunate to go through. There's a lot of, I guess, a lot of insights that I've been, again, very fortunate to be drawn towards. I've worked with some incredibly talented individuals that they are in themselves some of the most iconic business leaders in the world. So to be in close proximity with those individuals, you cannot help but learn something from them. So I've always felt that it's certainly our role to try and share some of that knowledge and some of those experiences. And what better place to do it than within a university or a college or a school environment where individuals at that stage in their development, where they're beginning to form their passions and where they will spend the rest of their lives. So for me, it's incredibly rewarding to work with Xavier in Northern Kentucky and Oxford with incredibly bright, inquisitive, passionate students who want to learn, who want to really benefit from those experiences from the real world, not from the academic world, but from the real world, to help them shape their thinking and hopefully be that huge pool of talent that is about to enter our workforce. So it's incredibly rewarding. And you know, frankly, it keeps me in touch with what's happening. Because I think I think it's very easy these days to become siloed. You know, technology, you mentioned it earlier on, you know, technology is an incredible enabler. It makes our life so much easier in so many ways. But the risk is that we spend our time focused on a small tablet in our hands with our heads down, tapping buttons, sending emails rather than looking up and having real conversations with real people. And I think that we need to always be conscious of the fact that the world is full of people and we need to have that dialogue. And the more that we can spend time with one another, the more we will learn and the more opportunities we'll have to share.
0: How fortunate for the students who get to experience that with you. The thing that has always motivated me in our conversations, besides your intellect and your perspective, is that you not only consider it a responsibility to be working with the next generation, you also find it to be a privilege that you can share and learn from them as well. And I feel that that's the joy. And that is transmitted to the students that you uh, are able to touch, so fortunately for them. So I think that's a message to our listeners, to stay connected. If you're in business and you're a leader, you should be thinking about the next generation. And it's not just who's in your company. It's where's the educational system taking, and where are you going to be looking for your successor? And if you don't know who your successor is or how to find that successor, Then you're stuck. You can't leave. (laughs) So, I think it's a really good lesson. Well, we are coming close to the end of our conversation, and I hate for it to stop. I did want to touch very briefly on the PNG Alumni Network. You know, I know we've talked a lot about Procter and Gamble. It's been a huge influence on our community as well. But the Alumni Network actually allows the leaders who have left Procter and Gamble to take that culture either into their retirement, but in many cases, very many cases, to other organizations. You've been involved with that, I know. Can you share a little bit about the network with us?
2: Yeah, yeah, I'd be delighted to. And I've been associated with the alumni network, which is probably around 35 or 40,000 individuals globally that are all divided into various chapters throughout the world. I've been associated with them for a long, long time, well before I technically became an alumni, because I, I was responsible at PG, for want of a better description, owning the relationship between PNG and its alumni network. But here's the interesting thing: PG has a very strong culture, right? It has very clear values, very clear purpose. And the people that have worked for PNG over the years. They share many, if not all, of those values and principles and purpose. And effectively, how to articulate that, these are individuals that have a passion, a passion for doing the right thing, right? which is at the heart of what P&G truly believes in. So here we have individuals that truly believe in, in trying to make a difference and doing the right thing. They have a passion for excellence. And they also have a huge passion for making a difference in the lives around them in the communities that they live in or serve, right? So you've got at any one time, thousands upon thousands of individuals with very common beliefs. And those beliefs don't change when either they retire from PNG or they move on somewhere else. And the alumni network has created a forum for want of a better expression, a forum where those individuals who are no longer a PNG can continue to share those, that same passion for excellence and touching and improving life. And that's at the core of the alumni. And the alumni does some astonishing work. It has its own foundation that every year it provides grants to not-for-profits to do some quite remarkable work throughout the world. So it's a real privilege to continue to be associated with some of the most talented and inspiring individuals that, for whatever reason, are no longer with PNG, but want to be still associated with that, if you like, common fraternity. And the alumni network continues to grow in strength. It holds a global conference every two years. Last year, in 2017, it was actually here in Cincinnati, which... You wouldn't be surprised to learn was incredibly successful. Not just because PNG is headquartered here, this global headquarters, but of course we could still got a lot of alumni that live within this region. 2019, the global conference will be in Madrid. So it gives you a sense that you know this global conference truly is global. It does move around the world every two years, and I think a lot of us are really looking forward to being all together again in Madrid in October of 2019.
0: Thank you. Thank you for sharing, Matt. Thank you again for joining us. I feel it's always a privilege. I always feel so much energy after our conversations, and I hope our listeners do as well. So thank you for not only sharing your wonderful stories, but also your leadership example. Um, So this is Jessica Barron. I am your podcast host today. Thank you, Paul, for joining us. Thank you. Are you hungry for the best talent your industry has to offer? Centennial's five-point checklist for attracting top talent will have them banging down your door. Go to talentmagnetinstitute.com slash competitive to learn more.
1: The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is powered by Centennial, a talent strategy and executive search firm, and the Talent Magnet Institute. You can engage with us at Talent Magnet I on Twitter, or Talent Magnet Institute on LinkedIn and Facebook. Please communicate by using hashtag Talent Magnet. Find us in your favorite podcast app to subscribe, rate, and leave a review, as well as share with a colleague. You can also listen at talentmagnetpodcast.com. Our podcast studio is based in greater Cincinnati, Ohio. We are supported by our listeners, clients, and partners from all over the world. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is made possible by a great team that includes Janelle Spence and Christine Lewis of Centennial, Josh Chappelle and Adam Smith of Soundpress, produced by Chris Madine of New Fidelity Studios, and Audra Casino and Megan Doherty of One Stone Creative. Music written by DJ Corbett and Chris Madine, and myself, your host, Mike Sipple Jr.